Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Randy Herman Jr.? This murder case was the topic of a Hulu documentary titled Dead Asleep. Randy Herman was born in Pennsylvania in 1993. He lived with his mother and sister. His mother and father divorced when he was young. Even though his father only lived about 40 minutes away, Randy rarely saw him. His father was often intoxicated. Randy's mother worked three jobs to take care of him and his sister. They moved several times, eventually ending up in Laceyville, Pennsylvania. This is a small town with a population of about 400 people. Randy Herman was friends with two sisters, Jordan and Brooke Preston. After Randy graduated high school in 2011, he enrolled at Mansfield University and studied criminal justice. He worked part-time as a corrections officer at a county jail. He didn't know it, but he was preparing pretty well for his future with that job, albeit he would eventually be on the other side of the bars. He lost his job when he was charged with possession of marijuana in August of 2013. A few days after pleading guilty to a lesser charge in that case, he was arrested for DUI. He left college and moved back in with his mother. He worked at a beef processing plant. He felt as though it was a dead-end job. Randy was still on probation for the first DUI when he was arrested again in May of 2014. He was sentenced to a month in jail. At around this time, Randy's father shot and killed his live-in girlfriend. He then drove to Alabama and hid from the police for two months before bringing an end to his life. The police were just about to catch him. Randy received a $25,000 inheritance after his father's death. In May of 2016, Jordan Preston, again this is Randy's friend, moved to West Palm Beach, Florida. At some point, her sister Brooke moved there as well. Randy often communicated with Jordan, joking about how he would like to move down to Florida to be with them. He wasn't too happy with his life in Pennsylvania. He viewed Florida as a place where he could make a fresh start. In July of 2016, Randy drove to Florida Jordan, Brooke, and Randy found a ranch house in the city of West Palm Beach, 
and moved in. Initially, the arrangement seemed to be working. Jordan worked at a water management plant. Brooke had just finished her degree at State College of Florida, and Randy found a job selling internet and cable service. Four months after starting his job, Randy quit. He didn't like the fluctuations in his commission-based pay. He started staying up at night and sleeping most of the day. He adopted a party lifestyle and started using substances excessively. Sometimes he spent as much as $200 a night on alcohol and cocaine. He wiped out his inheritance in just three months. As all this was going on, Brooke decided that she was going to move to Buffalo, New York to live with her boyfriend of four years. She moved there in December of 2016, but left her vehicle and some of her belongings at the house in Florida. She intended to return to Florida in March of 2017 to recover her property and say goodbye to her friends in the area. In preparation for this visit, Randy tried to refrain from using any type of substance. It was like he was trying to clean himself up to be more presentable when Brooke arrived. On March 23, 2017, Brooke flew to Florida. Randy picked her up from the airport. Jordan was not at the house. She was on a trip in Colorado. The next day, March 24, Randy and Brooke consumed an excessive quantity of alcohol and spent time at the beach. Later, Randy guessed that he drank about 30 beers on this one day. Randy and Brooke made their way back to the house. Randy was feeling the effects of the alcohol. Brooke started to get aggravated with his behavior. She thought he was belligerent. She texted a friend of hers named Kyle McGregor to come get her, saying that she was ready to kill Randy. Brooke walked to her bedroom to pack items to spend the night at Kyle's residence. Her intent was to stay with him and travel to Buffalo the next morning. She discovered Randy naked in her bedroom closet. He had his finger in front of his mouth as if she should be quiet. Brooke left the bedroom immediately. She was quite upset. Kyle arrived and she left with him. The next morning, now March 25, Brooke was back in the house packing a few more items when Randy woke up. She was getting ready to go with Kyle to breakfast and invited Randy, but he declined. Randy claimed that he went back to bed. Right after Brooke left the house, Randy claimed that he remembered a gift that he wanted to give her to take to her boyfriend in Buffalo. He texted her and indicated that he wanted her to return to the house before she left so she could retrieve this gift. The gift was a t-shirt. On the t-shirt was a memorial to a friend of theirs who was killed after becoming intoxicated and walking in front of a car. I think this pretty much sums up the lifestyle that Randy was living. Alcohol was such a hero to him that it was a badge of honor if somebody died from being intoxicated. Brooke arrived back at the house at 8.35 a.m. Randy claimed that after Brooke came into the house, she entered his bedroom. He directed her to the location of the t-shirt in a dresser drawer. She retrieved it. They hugged goodbye, and then he returned to bed. He claims his next memory is waking up with his hunting knife in his hand, standing over Brooke's dead body in the hallway. Brooke had been stabbed 25 times, and her throat had been cut. There was blood all over the house. Randy had injuries on his arms, hands, and chest, consistent with perpetrating a knife attack against a victim who was actively defending themselves. Neighbors had heard screams coming from the house 
at 8.49 a.m., but they didn't bother calling the police. Randy exited the house at 8.57 a.m. after retrieving the keys to Brooks' car. He drove her car to a nearby park as he called 911 and admitted that he was responsible for the homicide. Randy was taken into custody and charged with murder. He pretended that he didn't know what happened. Again, he just woke up holding this knife. He has stayed with this story since the murder. Randy didn't have enough money for an attorney, so he was assigned a public defender. They had no idea how they were going to defend Randy. According to Randy's mother, she, his sister, and Randy all had episodes of sleepwalking in their history. One time he walked from his bedroom to the kitchen and opened some cabinets. On another occasion, he rode his bicycle down the street to a bar where his mother worked. He didn't say anything. He just turned around and rode his bicycle home. Sleepwalking is a very unlikely explanation for murder, but it's really all Randy had as far as defense. Randy was offered 50 years in prison for pleading guilty to first-degree murder, but he insisted on pleading not guilty by reason of insanity and going to trial. If he had taken that deal and earned the maximum amount of time for good behavior, he would have been out in his mid to late 60s. In May of 2019, Randy was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now moving to my analysis. The theory of the defense in this case is that Randy was sleepwalking. If this defense was not true, then he committed some type of murder. Premeditated murder, in the heat of the moment murder, but murder either way. There was no other explanation. He was the only other person in the house with Brooke, and he admitted that he killed her. This brings us to the question, was Randy Herman guilty? Let's take a look at the factors both for and against the idea that Randy Herman was guilty, starting with the inculpatory evidence. Randy admitted that he killed Brooke Preston. This item makes it pretty easy to believe he's guilty. The murder weapon was a hunting knife that he kept on his bed. His fingerprints were found on the knife. Randy had a history of criminality and substance use. Substance use is associated with impulsivity. Randy removed all of his clothing and stood in Brooke's closet the night before the murder. She described his behavior as belligerent. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.
My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. The timing of the murder was highly suspicious. For several months, Randy lived with Brooke and Jordan and was never violent. Then all of a sudden, when Brooke is going to leave permanently, he kills her. What's more, she was going to live with a love interest. So it wasn't just permanent as far as the geography. It was permanent as far as her romantic selection. Randy claimed that the last memory he had before waking up with a knife in his hand was a brook walking out of his bedroom. If this was true, Randy only had about five minutes to get into a state of sleep most associated with sleepwalking. The murder of Brooke Preston required a number of complex actions on the part of Randy. He had to retrieve his hunting knife, stab her repeatedly, chase her from his bedroom to the living room, then drag her body back into the hallway. All this time, Rook was defending herself and screaming. Randy walked to the sink and attempted to clean up after Brook was dead. Why would somebody sleepwalking be interested in destroying evidence? There is no possible way that somebody sleepwalking could have taken all these complex actions, and there is no way they could have remained in that state during all this activity. They would have woken up. Moving to the exculpatory evidence. Randy had no history of violence, and he did have a history of sleepwalking. His mother remembered two episodes. Some of the behavior Randy described around the time of the killing was consistent with sleepwalking. I don't think this really helped Randy as much as his defense would have hoped. In the documentary, we see the defense presents some research that had 13 criteria that are associated with sleepwalking violence, most of which appear to match Randy's behavior. We see arousal after the onset of sleep, an extended period of complex activity, the victim was loved by the perpetrator, the victim was not recognized immediately following the crime, the attack was followed by confusion, there was amnesia for the event, there was a history of parasomnia, sleepwalking is a parasomnia, there was no attempt to cover up the crime, no apparent motive, an extended period of emotional distress after the homicide, there was a poor sleep pattern established on the preceding nights, no history of violence, and no alcohol use. This one, of course, did not match Randy's behavior. He used alcohol excessively. The defense tried to argue that this only meant he was more likely to sleepwalk, but the research literature strongly disagrees with that conclusion. The problem with these criteria, of course, is that most of these are just self-report. Randy claimed he loved the victim. Randy claimed he didn't remember the event. He claimed he was distressed. He claimed he had sleep problems. This was his narrative. These are not facts that are proven. These are just things that he stated. When considering all the evidence, do I think Randy Herman was guilty? Yes, I believe he was guilty in reality and guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. He was really guilty beyond almost any doubt. There's really no question in my mind. This case did not involve some type of sleepwalking violence. 
The whole sleepwalking narrative was a desperate and pathetic long shot that was only introduced because Randy had no other defense whatsoever. The Hulu documentary, Dead Asleep, left out a lot of details and overplayed the sleepwalking aspect. It was one of the worst documentaries I've seen in recent times. There was a lot of speculation with no actual understanding of the mental health aspects at work in the case. What do I think actually happened in this case? What was Randy's motive? This is a theory, just my opinion. Randy Herman had a tough time growing up. He was depressed and started using substances at an early age. His father was not the best role model with the homicide and all. Randy developed a friendship with Jordan and Brooke. He was sexually attracted to them, but did a good job at hiding it. He had low self-esteem and was insecure. He didn't consider himself attractive, and he was focused on his alcohol use. They never noticed the attraction. Randy was kind of aimless, but getting the inheritance from his father and having a chance to move in with Jordan and Brooke in Florida gave him new hope. When he was in Florida, he had difficulty coping with his attraction for Brooke specifically. He started to misinterpret their living situation as consistent with Brooke being open to having a relationship with him. For example, in the trial, it was mentioned that the trio used one bathroom, and it was not unusual that they would see each other in various levels of dress. So sometimes they weren't always wearing a lot of clothing. This may have meant nothing to Jordan and Brooke, but it could have meant something to Randy. He was not good at interpreting their behavior. Maybe he read into it. He may have also believed that because they tolerated his undressing behavior, that meant there was some level of interest. When Brooke left to live with her boyfriend, Randy was upset. He coped with the unrequited love by drinking, which was a coping mechanism he was familiar with. When he heard that Brooke was coming back for a final goodbye and to get her stuff, he saw this as his big chance. He was going to clean up his act, get off of the alcohol and drugs, and make a grand romantic gesture. Simply remaining sober for two weeks might seem like an unimpressive feat to qualify as such a grand gesture, like it wouldn't be a good reason for Brooke to select Randy. But from Randy's point of view, this was a real achievement. By his standards, it was amazing and almost impossible. On March 24, Randy and Brooke became intoxicated. In this disinhibited state, Randy made his big move. He removes all his clothing and stands in Brooke's closet which is indicative of his level of dysfunction. He thought that this was attractive. Brooke is understandably disgusted, but doesn't pick up on the unrequited love component. Randy thinks about this rejection as Brooke is spending time with their friend Kyle. He becomes increasingly angry. He wakes up and sees Brooke in the house, gathering her belongings and preparing to leave forever. He can't stand it, but he restrains himself in that moment, Perhaps at this time, he makes one last effort to convince her that they're destined to be together or some other equally creepy proposition. When she leaves without acknowledging his love or changing her mind, his rage grows out of control. He sends her a text message about returning for the t-shirt. This was to lure her back to the house. When she enters his bedroom, he viciously attacks her. In that moment, all that pent-up rage and frustration is released. Randy could not force Brooke to love him, but he could stop her from loving anyone else. She tries to escape, 
and he chases her down. He drags her body back from the living room into the hallway, perhaps on his way to the bedroom, so he can fulfill some type of fantasy. Her body is heavier than he thought. He becomes exhausted and stops. Killing somebody with a knife is a lot of work. He covers her with a blanket, perhaps in an effort to move her body, or he just doesn't want to face what he has done. He probably planned on putting her body in the trunk of her car and dumping it somewhere, but he didn't have the strength to keep moving her body. Randy is so ashamed of his sexual motive for the murder that he just makes up the story about not remembering anything. The sleepwalking defense is an afterthought. In the Hulu documentary, we see that the jury does take this case seriously. Like there were some jurors who thought that maybe Randy was not guilty. After looking at the evidence, they of course concluded he was guilty. But I think it speaks to the power of this sleepwalking defense. What I find interesting here is that if Brooke had survived and the trial was about attempted murder and not first-degree murder, no one would have considered the sleepwalking defense for a second. If Brooke got on the stand and said, yes, this is the guy who stabbed me, I tried to defend myself, it was terrible, nobody would have thought for a second that Randy was not guilty. This sleepwalking defense is really something that's used when the victim cannot speak for themselves. It's this one-sided story, and it's really developed to try to build some type of sympathy for the offender, like they were in some dream state and they had no idea what they were doing. Maybe this was just a parasomnia-related accident, and not a homicide. So I think that's important to keep in mind when looking at this defense. If there were two sides to the story, there really wouldn't be a defense. Now moving to my final thoughts. After Randy went to prison, he filed an appeal representing himself. He is desperate to escape responsibility for his actions. He wants out of prison. He is still sticking with the sleepwalking story for the most part, but he has also said that the killing occurred due to a combination of depression, stress, trauma, and alcohol use. Sleepwalking murder may be possible, but it's not what happened in this case. If Randy Herman was sleepwalking when he engaged in the complex actions involved with killing Brooke Preston, then no one can be certain at any time they're not asleep. I might be asleep right now. This sleepwalking story strains credulity to such a degree that if it were believed, it would challenge the very nature of reality itself. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing; she'd invested three hundred thousand dollars with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple 
Swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. 